Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. and the counter-evidence. I'm struggling with that. When the facts are filled with coincidences, don't dismiss those coincidences. I have no tolerance for the unexplainable. Well then, sir, you'll have no tolerance for me. Hello and welcome to Still Watching The Outsider. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you are just joining us for the first time on Still Watching, what we do every week is we pick a show that Richard and I are both watching and slightly obsessing over. We break down the latest episode. There will be no spoilers about the future of the season, mostly because we don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> I mean, there's a book, but we don't know what's going to happen on the show. Uh, so there will be no book spoilers, no look aheads at the future episodes. Today we are talking about season one, episode seven. In the pines and the pines. Um, um, I do have one spoiler, but I think, but I, I, it's, it's probably kind of obvious just as you look at the Easter eggs. But I think this episode, this show, this season's going to end in three episodes. Oh, whoa. Whoa, yeah. you just blew my mind with that <laughs> theory, Richard. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> this episode was directed by Dana Reed and written by Richard's Massachusetts cousin, Dennis Lehane. Oh, yeah. We will get into the Lahane of it all later on. I'm just kidding. Richard's not actually related to Dennis Lahane <laughs> as far as I know. but I, I mean, everyone, probably. <laughs> everyone from, from Massachusetts is related to Richard as far as I'm concerned. Um, so we're going to talk about all of that. The Lahane angle is really interesting to me. So um, let us uh, dive into that. But first, we're going to get to some emails from you guys. You can email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. And uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. We've, we've had like a very active uh, email conversation this season with you guys and and that um that makes us really exciting um by the way we don't have um screeners for future episodes of this show at this point so we're going to be recording these episodes on monday so you're going to be getting them a little later uh instead of dropping them sunday night we're going to be watching with the rest of you guys and then recording on mondays that but what that means is that if you have thoughts about the current episode you just watched and want to hop on your email Sunday night and dash us. I mean, what else would you want to do but email us on a Sunday night? Uh, we can read sort of your reactions to the current episode rather than the previous week's episode on the podcast. And we would love to, to do that. So mm-hmm. uh, but we are not quite there yet. So we are still in episode six territory with these emails, uh, starting with this one from Rosalind, which I, which I really liked because it's some bus driver, bus driver Intel, you may re- recall. Uh, in a previous episode when Holly has this like vision of the bus crashing and she, she freaks out and the bus driver sort of turns around and, and almost causes an accident in his reaction to her freak out. Um, 
And so Rosalind writes in and says, uh, uh, my mom's partner in safety management is in safety management with a bus slash train system in Pittsburgh, PA. He was so mad about the bus crash scene. We had to pause the show and talk about it. I lo- okay, this is Joanna. I love when experts watch TV shows and get really mad yeah, about how their profession is being depicted. Anyway, he was so mad about the bus crash scene. We had to pause the show and talk about it. He said that bus drivers are trained to never turn around while driving. If someone was making a scene like Holly was, the driver would look through the rearview mirror to assess the situation. Um, and that's just like, that's it. That's all Rosalind had to say. That's all That's all. Um, this, this gentleman had to say about bus driving but like that's interesting to me i'm not saying you should test this theory by causing a scene on a bus but um i just that's interesting for me to know um that bus drivers just have to keep their eye on the road and i guess i suppose like just pull over when it feels safe to deal with the uh incident going on behind you but um, yeah that, that was kind of interesting i'll yeah. bear that in mind when i'm on the bolt bus or something next and just take a little comfort <laughs> in that fact <laughs> you could cause as much of a scene you want, so no one's going to turn around. All right. Um, and then this one comes from Liz. And Liz says that she's a big uh, King fan and a fan of Still Watching, so she's really excited that we were doing this show. She says, I was worried when I first saw the trailers. I've read the book, and King adaptations are tricky, but it's become a wonderful, surprising delight. I wanted to mention the use of the song Jet Black by Channel Trace in the scene where we see next stretch victim in the strip club lost in thought before he hauls off and punches one of the guys, causing a ruckus in the club. Uh, so this is Claude she's talking about. And uh, her theory here is that he's triggered by the guy who cuts him, the second person to cut him. Uh, did it trigger the memory of being scratched? And I think I like missed that he got cut. And that makes sense. Because uh, I think we were like kind of curious why Claude sort of reacted the way that he did uh, in that scene. And we get a little bit more of that fallout in, in this week's episode, episode seven, when he like quits and leaves because he mm-hmm. just is not feeling himself. Right. Um, but the lyrics of the song that are playing this song, jet black, um, as this is happening. Uh, so she says coming off the painful debacle of Holly's reveal meeting and the resulting fallout, which has everyone wrestling with the info delivered, that the real murderer is a supernatural being who's been around since who knows when creating pain and feeding off of it, hiding the shadows, both literally and figuratively and getting away with what he does unknowns unsuspected until now. Here are the lyrics that we hear clearly as the strip club scene begins. I never reply when you hit me. I'm off the grade, off the grade. You can't get me. <laughs> She's like, I just love that. The rappers bragging the way El Cuca would if supernatural beings existed and bragged about their crimes. And if they decide to lay their brag, down on a track to sick beats um she says i also want to mention that the camera pans uh the camera pan on the devastation that is jack's uh, apartment post beating at the hands of his mother slash el cuco was horrifying truly horrifying it seemed to go on and on and the first thought i had upon watching it was something awful and unspeakably violent occurred in this space i mean yeah we just seen most of the action but the aftermath was devastation and violence in a stunning visual for me it was more upsetting than the beating itself I don't know if this is purposeful, but I wonder if there was a subtle nod to domestic violence and or violent crimes against women in that visual. There was something glamorous or sensational about the aftermath, something a female director would understand well and add to the fact that Jack applying was applying makeup later to cover the wounds. Uh, thank you for reading. Um, big fan, Liz and Madison. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess I hadn't, uh, hadn't thought of that. We had, we had talked about sort of 
Jack and this metaphor of alcoholism uh, in that in that aftermath, but I hadn't thought of it in the in terms of domestic violence. But I think seeing the scene again this week in episode seven through Alex and Ralph's eyes, um, like I, I like that interpretation from Liz. I think it's it's an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, I think that like it, it's it's kind of classic Stephen King to make real world horrors um, that much more kind of um, stark with a kind of touch of supernatural stuff, which isn't, you know, which is not sort of, it's kind of highlighting stuff that actually happens in the real world. That's bad. Um, through the lens of, of, you know, something kind of fantastical. Yeah. I think that, um, so HBO has, you know, sometimes HBO does this thing where they're like inside the episode, uh, which I sometimes don't watch because I'm watching a screener. But since I watched this episode on HBO, I, you know, I stuck around and watched the thing. And um, they did a video package that was supposed to go like it was supposed to cover episodes five, six and seven. So they're not doing it for every episode, but they did one this week that uh, sort of covered the last three episodes. And they have, um, you know, an interview with Stephen King in there which I thought was interesting. And he, because King doesn't always undersign his adaptation. So it's clear that, you know, he's, he's, uh, you know, at least invested enough in this one to give them an interview um, about his work. But he said in this interview, he said, fears, fear, we all have a fear of death. I'm sorry, I wrote this down. So it's a paraphrase, but he also says, he said, we all have a fear of death, a fear of pain. And we tend to gravitate towards stories where those things take a concrete form that we can grasp. El Cuckoo is that is that kind of creature. And so that idea, I mean, that's like, you know, that's king in a nutshell, right? But um, that idea of an embodiment of pain, or an embodiment of death. And uh, like, it made me want to try to really think about like what all the characters in this story that we're watching could gain by having a concrete uh, manifestation of death or pain that they could grasp. And what would they do with it? You know, Um, you know, like what, what will it do for Ralph to be able to, you know, hold and, and, you know, uh, kill pain or kill death, you know, and, and the way that that extends to the grief that he's going through with his own son and stuff like that. So, um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Uh, um, no, I mean, I think that was, that was pretty, pretty succinct. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, I have some questions around Holly and mm-hmm. her relationship to pain. Um, as many of our listeners who have read the book have written in Holly's in a different point in her life uh, in the books. She's just like lost someone really close to her in the books. And Holly, Holly has lost, I think she's lost her mother uh, is something that she talked about briefly uh, in an earlier episode, but it's not something that like whatever she's grieving is not something that we see as a consistent theme in her character, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. she doesn't strike us as a grieving character. So, um, all right. So, those are some great emails. We got a, a ton more, but uh, please keep emailing in. Uh, I really, I read all of them, even if we don't read them on on air. So, thank you so much uh, for sending them. Still watching pod at gmail.com. Let us get into this episode. Um, we start with the morning routines of both Ralph and um, Andy. And, um, I don't know about you, but I like, I really love Andy's little home. He's got like a beautiful little window over his bed, yeah. a lot of natural light. Just saying, <laughs> He's doing Andy, pretty continues, well. Andy continues to be a catch. It's very tidy. He's very clean. Um, 
Yeah. The Andy of it all, the, uh, let's, let's just quickly address the Andy of it all. You know I'm a big Andy fan, but I am curious what role he serves in this episode. Do you have any thoughts about that? Um, well, I think it's kind of about further building this kind of coalition of people that we're seeing form uh, in order to combat this, just as like the kids in it or the grown up versions of the kids in it too. Um, or, I mean, they're all the characters in the same book, but in the movies, um, kind of band together to fight the big bad. Um, so I think he's a welcome addition to that. I think also that moment when he shows up and Holly kind of pulls a little trick on him and is like, what are you doing here? And then she like gives this big smile and a big, and a hug. And like, it's, it, we haven't really seen that from her yet. So I feel like he's a good, um, way for her to sort of, you know, express more of herself. Uh, although I have to say his reemergence and now sort of getting back closer to, to the case, uh, as it were, um, I'm a little <laughs> worried about him again. I know. I'm like, Andy, stay away. You were safe, far away from the monster. Yeah. Um, I am like both thrilled and very worried that Andy is here. But um, yeah, that opening up of Holly, um, you know, I like, I like the, you know, performance Cynthia Riva has been giving with Holly as like extremely reserved, but like her, her emotions are still accessible. I think to us as viewers, I think that's worked really well, but this episode, yeah, does a lot to open her up in three ways. And like, I think, um, you know, the experience that she went through with Jack is, an, is sort of an understandable reason why she's sort of cracked, uh, open in a way we haven't seen, but she's got that scene, right? Where she like smiles and hugs Andy and it's very sweet. She's got the scene where she and Jeannie are yelling at Ralph about like the way in which he's sort of obstructing the investigation. Mm-hmm. And then the ending, which is her screaming because she's had this dream or vision of having her. Um, head blown off. So uh, yeah, it's I'm uh, like I feel like I really understand the first two, and then the th- I'm having trouble with the third part, the screaming at the end. Um, what was your interpretation of the way in which the episode closed out? I I almost kind of thought that, like that it was trying to say that even if you are not you know touched by the demon, um, that he that it still gets in your head, you know, and that like even an imagined, I mean, she already did endure a trauma. I mean, it's really scary. Anything, everything that happened to her was really, really scary. Um, but like, I don't know that the fact that like, you know, this, this thing, this entity keeps, you know, not just targeting one thing, but, but enjoying the sort of, you know, concentric circles, the ripple effects of the Mm -hmm. one thing. Um, and here is a ripple effect, you know, someone who has maintained a pretty, um, you know, calm composure and sort of a prag- pragmatism is now, you know, having night terrors just like everybody else. And even maybe we're more palpably um, because of this thing, you know? So I think it's just kind of showing it's, it has a physical power, but it also has this kind of more ineffable um, emotional power that, uh, you know, can, can affect even the most sort of gathered of people. Yeah. It's interesting to me. Um, yeah, watching her lose her composure completely and just scream in the like like is that a reaction I would have to a nightmare where I got shot in the head after having a really traumatic like kidnapping experience? Probably. But is it ever the reaction that I would expect Holly to have? No. And so mm-hmm. it's so it's extra unnerving. You know, like if if Glory were to scream in any scene, you're like, "Yes, Glory seems like 5 seconds away from screaming at any point in this show." You know, understandably so. But like 
Holly to watch Holly lose her composure like that. It, it was really disturbing. I yeah. thought it was a really powerful, powerful way to close the episode. And it makes um, me think of um, the scene with Tamika where, you know, um, Ralph goes to be like, what was up with Jack? Like, you know, whatever. And she says, you know, maybe when I come back, I'm going to go um, to computer crimes. And she was like, I don't, She's like, I, I, I'm tired of the horror show or something like that. Something yeah, She said something yeah. about the horror show. And you think about Holly, who probably is used to investigating, you know, not stuff like this, certainly, that like that kind of that, that deep dive into this world of misery and pain is like going to have an effect at some point, you know, and this was her kind of viscerally processing that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, really, really strong, upsetting stuff. And what's interesting to me about this episode um, is that, you know, you and I had our theories about what we were going to see. Like, okay, so Jack has Holly. Uh, he's going to take her to the barn. There's going to be like a physical struggle and maybe she'll like get away and then people will finally like believe, you know, what's going on. And I really like that we were pretty wrong about that in terms of the fact that like the – the tension of the episode is not will Jack, a completely evil entity, hurt Holly, our hero that we care about. It's the struggle within Jack himself, who has become an extremely compelling character to me, at least. This the the way in which he's fighting against this this force that has chosen him and uh, is pushing him to do things that uh, are against his internal moral code and um, the the struggles he has with that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, I don't want to like sympathize with the kidnapper fully or whatever, but that's, you know, Holly, Cynthia Rivo said in the, in the post episode interview that like Holly's main objective or not her main objective is her own safety, but she's also like really trying to save Jack at the same time, like genuinely not just like trying to cozy up to him to like, um, you know, protect herself, but genuinely trying to reach him. And right. I think that's, that's so, that's so much stronger um, than something that's much more clear cut. Like how did the Jack stuff land with you? I mean, credit to the performance because it, it's truly, you know, I, I guess probably, you know, male actors are less inclined to feel this way just because of the shittiness of the industry. But like, you know, when it's, it's just truly an ugly role and it's, and, and it's a, it's a really painful performance, like in a good way. And like yeah. the way that he commits to it, it's just like, I, I, you know, he's revolting. Like I have a hard time watching him with all the makeup on and the bulbous kind of puffed up face. And that's just this kind of, you know, rictus of agony all over, all the time. Like it's, it's brutal, but I think he's really good at it. Um, but yeah, I agree that like, you know, I, I keep mentioning this, I feel like every episode, but like the, the show is so carefully balanced to not have it be outright miserableism at all times. And I think mm-hmm. a, a way that it does that is it keeps these characters very human. And even Holly, who's sort of, you know, a collection of sort of literary ticks and whatnot, but like I feel like they've found ways to sort of, you know, you know, humanize her and, and, and everybody involved and then also humanize the stakes of what we're dealing with. You know, we see things like Ralph and, um, Jeannie, like talking about like ordering dinner instead of cooking. We see all these quotidian things, uh, with Glory and her kids and, and pancakes and whatnot, you know, and then we see this thing, uh, where, you know, Holly recognizes the danger, but also, sees the humanity and realizes that those, you know, the afflicted people who are kind of doing the bidding of, of the demon um, are part of the tragedy. Right. And if you can save them too, like that's further victory against this thing that they're trying to figure out how to fight. 
Right. And we find out later on that, that Jack was trying to take Holly actually away from the barn. Whether or not he's trying to take her wherever he winds up going, like, my suspicion is that Jack is following Claude to wherever Claude is going. Like, that seems like correct. I don't know if, if there's, uh, you know, roadside evidence to the contrary, but it seems like, you know, if Claude has left town and is moving elsewhere, that El Cuco would send jack after claude so like that that was my thought yeah but but whatever it is he's not taking holly towards the barn and there's a possibility that the reason he was going in the opposite direction of the barn is that he didn't want to like hurt her in some way and um what he really wanted from her uh, more than anything was answers as to why this was happening to him how can i understand what this creature is um and like, is there any way for me to free myself of it? Um, you know, other than death, is there some answer for me other than death here? You know, so um, and I thought it was really powerful. The fact that that's what he took from the information that he hears about what happened to Tracy before him. Um, and he's and we see him try to kill himself and he can't and he's frustrated, which was our theory about Tracy as to why Tracy like put himself in front of the line of bullets. Right. Because he couldn't kill himself. So. Um but yeah, the, those, <laughs> I know that, that all sounded very dark, but you're right that this episode has a bunch of like, uh, interesting touches of humor, like, uh, the therapist saying, like, if I was interested in voodoo, I would have gone to voodoo school or whatever, mm-hmm. voodoo med school. Um, and that is very Dennis Lehane, right? Dennis Lehane does like pitch black subject matter with these odd sparks of humor, um, that sometimes at the, be- at their best, create something that is uh, you know palatable despite how pitch black the subject matter is um and i think you see that really well calibrated in this episode uh for our listeners who don't know who dennis lahane is uh he wrote gone baby gone mystic river shutter island uh and some episodes of the wire and boardwalk empire so um you know that's that's our guy. What do you have any? Um, I don't know if you like as a, as a as a someone from Massachusetts, Richard. Do you have any like specific Lane thoughts or like the, you know the themes that he likes to explore in his work? Yeah, I think it's funny. Kind of like Richard Price is maybe for New York, or I guess to some extent Baltimore too, but mostly New York. Like Dennis Lane, at least growing up in Boston, like was he was he was our sort of liked you know, one of our tough guy poets, you know, he understood the sort of mean streets, but had a, an air of the sort of literary about him. And, you know, you look at like a movie adaptation of Mystic River, the Clint Eastwood film, which won a bunch of Oscars and, and, or at least was nominated for a bunch and won Sean Penn and Oscar. Um, like there's, um, you know, there, there is that kind of duality of the tough stuff, but also this kind of, I mean, maybe it's a Catholic kind of grace, but there is a sort of, you know, sense of the, of transcendence, I guess you could say. So it's interesting to watch Lehane come on to a Richard Price show because I do think that while Richard Price also has, um, you know, that sort of like his ear to the streets and kind of, you know, can speak the patois of, of police and whatever, um, it, I think Lehane has a more sort of, 
emotional touch than Richard Price typically does. And so it's interesting watching that come to bear here on this kind of very pivotal episode where, you know, I thought this this turning point was going to come maybe an episode earlier in the season where like mm-hmm. pretty much everyone is now getting on board with things and we're really kind of narrowing down into this pursuit you know um because we even you know so so anyway i just think that like it's interesting that they brought him in for that particular episode which i think again while you know putting the narrative pieces in place so we can get to our climax and whatever um also just kind of further textures out the um the emotional stuff i think you know not just with holly or jack but also with glory and her sort of failed return to work that was maybe partly of her own doing um you know and then the kind of thing with the realtor who her, her co-worker who's like you know what actually you're right don't let them run you out of town like these these i like that we're sort of considering now the future yeah absolutely um it's interesting to me because uh richard price wrote the first five episodes of the season and then uh a writer jesse nixon lopez wrote last week's episode episode six and then it's and then it's Dennis Lehane, Richard Price, Dennis Lehane, Richard Price. So Dennis Lehane is coming in as a closer, sort of for like two of the last four episodes. And mm-hmm. um, I think he's an incredible choice because like something something that he likes to do, as far as I've observed from reading his stuff, is um, just those really thick moral quandaries where um, it forces you as a reader to grapple with. Uh, hmm, like it makes you as a reader confront what you think is right. And then how rigid is, is that belief? So for, let me explain, for example, in gone baby gone and uh, spoilers for gone baby gone, not specific spoilers, but the baby is gone. The baby is gone, but then comes back. The, you know, the, this, this girl goes missing uh, and it turns out that she was, you know, taken to protect, you know, by the cops to protect her from her drug addicted mother. And it's like, and she's returned and it's like, is that the right, what was the right move? Who was right in what they did and, and what is the right path forward? And, um, I was reading this interview with Lahane where he says about Gone Baby Gone, about the protagonist in Gone Baby Gone. He says he's done the right thing, but he was wrong. He's done the wrong thing, but he was right. Like, it's just like that really crunchy question. And so like, I, it's funny because even before I saw that it was Dennis Lehane who wrote this episode, my thought at the beginning of the episode when Jeannie is like, hey, Holly, okay, so Holly's not here. Why isn't she here, Ralph? Who does she know? She doesn't even have a car. Where is she? And like making Ralph ask those questions and then making Ralph like track her down. And I was, my reaction that I like wrote in my notes is like, the true measure of a good person is not doing the right thing when you know it's right. It's maybe doing the right thing when there's a part of you that wonders if it's wrong. And so like, uh, Ralph feels like Holly is a crackpot and incorrect and he's really frustrated with her and all this sort of stuff. Um, but he's immediately going to do the thing, the work to find her. Um, because that's who Ralph is. You know, mm-hmm. and he's not going to be like, well, whatever this, this, you know, crazy person wandered into town, said all this stuff, really upset glory, like screw her. I don't care. He's like, uh, no, I, I will find her. 
and I will protect her, even if I wildly disagree with her and am kind of angry with her. And that, I think, is a much more interesting journey to watch than just like a good guy doing the right thing for the right reasons, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think about um, the Sean Penn character in Mystic River, who is, you know, dealing with a past trauma, but also... um, you know, in the present tense, looking for his, his the killer of his daughter, and like, you know, and everything he, every kind of conviction he has points him ultimately in the wrong direction. And then the story ends with this kind of like, oh well, that's who did it. It wasn't what it wasn't this thing that you thought. Like it was, you know. And so I think similarly, we have someone here who's like, you know, going to this therapist as a character might in a more Catholic story go to a priest and just being like is it okay for me to like think differently and and to sort of like expand past what i'm sure of you know and and there's a religious question in there there's a philosophical question in there and um i think that like watching each character sort of some more quickly than others obviously come to grips with like like i liked when gd was like you know, you can't keep doing this. You can't keep saying that this stuff is not that the 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 um, unexplainable or something irrational or something isn't a fact because it's you know it's just right in front of you. So I, I like the kind of the dawning realization that Lahane has sort of like well you know th- threaded into this episode. Yeah, that idea of belief. So something that um, I really love this because yeah, like uh, Lahane's dealing with um, like more, uh, you know, uh, traditional Catholic spiritual belief uh, versus what everyone in this show is grappling with, which is a different kind of belief or expanding your mind or, or your own experiences. Something that I like that we keep seeing are these other characters telling Ralph their stories of like what they believe. So we've got in this episode, it's the Alex Pelly character, but we already saw, um, the character of Yoon, like, do his version. Um, and, uh, you know, the, just these characters talking about um, encounters they've had, moments they've had, moments they've believed what has changed their world in this way or another. And, like, Ralph is, we're watching Ralph go through his version of that right now, right? right. This is the, this is the thing that he has to confront that will forever we assume change his worldview um and we're in the midst of it you know yeah and that's i i think i as a as a thematic arc for a season of television or or miniseries um i think it's 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 pretty strong and it's and it's i think so far it's it's well done um you know i think I keep saying it, but I think this really was the episode. Like, if we really spend a lot of episode eight with Ralph still denying, 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 and, you know, that would be kind of frustrating. But I think that, like, you know, he's being asked to believe some pretty crazy stuff. So uh, it makes sense that it would take him an episode and change to to kind of come around, at least to the idea, the possibility of entertaining it, you know? And the when, when King in this post-episode interview was talking about... El Cuco and like what he thrives on, like, as we understand, he thrives on grief, the concentric circles of grief, as we as you were talking about. Um, But King says something really interesting. He says that he thrives on unbelief, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, He is safe only if people do not believe that anything like this could possibly ever happen. That is what has kept him safe for so long. And so like that, the greatest thing to combat this creature is to believe in him is sort of like the opposite of Tinkerbell, I suppose. Um, and, and so that's another, another thing. Like if we're talking about the concrete manifestation of uh, pain and grief, we're also talking about the concrete manifestation of like um, 
of faith, right? Uh, that that is that is the the weapon is is some sort of concrete manifestation of faith is the weapon against this creature, which which you know, in this modern world where we don't believe in those kinds of unexplainable events, or a lot of us don't believe in those kinds of unexplainable events, that that is the perfect environment for something like El Cuco to thrive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'd mentioned this before, but like, you know, the ending of the first season of True Detective, another winter, you know, crime show from HBO, um, <laughs> where they look up at the stars and they say, there's, you know, you know, there's like, like there's a lot of dark out there, but I think Rusty Cole says, yeah, but from what I see, the light is winning, you know, and I think that like we're yeah. probably, hopefully, I hope anyway, arriving at a sort of similar conclusion of like, look, like there are the world is full of terrible things. Here is an actual physical manifestation of that. Uh, and we can beat that. But like, you know, Jack asking in the car, like, is it just one? Are there more? Like all this. And it's like, yeah, maybe there are. Like maybe there is a hell mouth in Cleveland. But like we're at least going to kind <laughs> of, you know, get yeah. this one sorted because that's what people have to do to kind of move on in life. You know, you have to kind of at least conquer something, you know. And I think that's what this show, from my, what I can tell so far, is is really about. If I – if. You know, in order for them to land that, like, the light is winning message at the end of this season, mm-hmm. Andy better live. That's all well, I have right. to say. No, exactly. Andy is our, like, yeah, he, <laughs> he's our key. He's, he's our Andy, Yeah, spot. he's our, our dawn. Yeah, if Andy mm-hmm. dies, the light will go out in the universe as far as I'm concerned. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Okay, um... Speaking of that, like, thing that Ralph is grappling with, I think one of the really powerful, really powerful moments of the episode uh, is a small one, which is when he just goes over and, like, sits in that chair that Jeannie has, like, you know, put outside because El Cuco, like, sat. A projection of El Cuco sat in it and and gooped it, slimed it. Mm-hmm. And Ralph is like, I, you know, it's just a chair, right? But he sits in it so gingerly, and it's so it's it was a really fascinating moment for me. That yeah, there. well, yeah, it just become this became this cursed object, you know, all yeah. of a sudden. Um, and it's covered in goo, so <laughs> I don't I don't blame I mean, Jeannie. <laughs> I would not have I would not have sat in the goo chair personally, yeah. but you know. Um, and I was in I, college once. So I sat in plenty of goo chairs on my, those days are behind me. That's <laughs> true. That's true. Um, and, uh, oh, oh, you mentioned True Detective. Uh, this, this episode reminded me a lot of True Detective and I wasn't like fully sure why. And then, uh, Dennis Lehane said like in his little talking head interview, he's like, oh, I, I just, I love characters talking in cars. And I was like, oh, that's all that season one of True Detective was, which ruled my favorite season of True Detective. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. Not so two? Got- <laughs> Your favorite wasn't season two? <laughs> uh, if, if only Tim Riggins had had a car instead of a motorcycle, maybe oh, there you go. two would have been my yeah. favorite. But, yeah. um, like, You've got Holly and Jack, and they've got several car conversations that we cut to, and then you also have Alex and Ralph, and it and it is this, you know, the tension of putting Holly in that car, um, and 
as I said earlier, the question being not so much like, is this guy going to kill her? Which is a question, but also like just the struggle that Jack is going through. Cause he doesn't know what he's going to do and he doesn't know how much he can control is really powerful. And, and then like his, his vulnerability and all of that. I really liked the part where he was like, she's like, why didn't you kill me before I gave my presentation? Like if that's what El Cuco wanted, you know, if you, El Cuco said, stop me, why did you let me go? And he was like, I just thought you'd have more information than you had. Like, I thought you'd have the answer to what I should do. So, yeah. Um, I did want to talk about glory. You, you mentioned sort of like glory's arc in this episode, but I think that uh, this sort of speaks to, a question that, uh, you know, uh, a listener wrote in about, um, why is, why is the Maitland family sort of still alive and somewhat thriving when the other families, uh, were exploded? And I think the answer is we're still in the middle of the cycle, right? right. Because like Glory here, what happens to Glory when she tries to go back to work? And then even more so, I feel like, glory talking to howie about all the people they're going to sue and like you know he howie brings up the question are you going to go after individuals so like aka ralph like are you going to sue ralph what is that going to do to your relationship to genie is is the grief you know and howie almost seemed to be like stoking that you know in a way that all just felt like el cuco would had like a tasty meal out of that phone call you know what i mean because it's just like the the grief and the pain and the damage widening um after what glory went through in this episode and it's making her a pessimist you know it's we don't know for certain that the young couple was actually thinking any of those things you know when she was it may be you know the woman said that's not fair so clearly they maybe knew who she was but that doesn't mean that they were thinking in in such negative terms you know and and so i you know like that is a kind of you know, a death in a way of, of, um, of one's idealism and one's sort of previous self, you know? So yeah, I think that, I think Glory, unfortunately, the character is still very much in a precarious position, you know? Right. She's in crisis. Her daughters are in crisis. And then like, if she goes after, her, cause I feel like every time it's like, every time she talks to Jeannie and Ralph, it's like, we're moving towards a place of healing. And then every time there's something that drives a wedge, a further wedge between them, you know, it's, it's a, it's, they're on a path of damage for all parties concerned, you know, so. Yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit about like the political aspects of this episode. Um, one is um, when Holly and Jack are in the car and he turns on the radio um, and it's like, um, you know, a, a political chat show or whatever. And this guy is saying like, he says they laugh in New York and they laugh in San Francisco, but they will not be laughing when the mouth of hell opens up. And then he changes uh, the station to a Ricky Nelson song. But, um, you know, the setting, I don't know, like maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but that feels like a super intentional thing. And it's like, um, okay. So tell me if you think I'm reading too much into it, but like the idea of our political or current political discourse and the way in which like, certain parties stoke division and fear and pain and grief you know like this 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 is like i don't think fox news ever says when the mouth of hell opens up but you know like they might as well though uh, i mean right like that that sort of like 
pushing people to their pain and grief points, which is like what El Cuco does. And and I feel like this inclusion of this snippet of radio is supposed to be like, and we have that in our own society in other avenues. Do you think that that's a reach or what do you think, Richard? I uh, know. I think that's a fair read of it. Certainly. I think maybe there's also a little bit of saying, well, you know, look like, there are people who believe in supernatural things and, you know, wicked forces and all that, like, but in some ways they don't have it right either, you know? Um, and I, so I think it's, I think it's offering a little ambivalence in a way. Um, but yeah, I think also like, you know, it, it does ground it in a place, you know, we are talking about rural Georgia here, you know, um, I think it gives it that context and, 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 you know, um, the show doesn't really talk about this much, but like here we have kind of a violent good old boy white cop in a car alone with a black woman in rural Georgia. Like there is an inherent tension there and, and, and if for Holly's sake, like a, a certain, you know, beyond the obvious danger. Um, and I think that like, you know, that little snippet that we hear of the radio is just reminding you that like, yeah, there's like a, there is a kind of anger and malevolence in the world anyway without this, this entity stalking everybody. And what makes it so much more interesting is that, like, that's not really who Jack is, right? Like, his no. closest woman is, is, like, friend is this, like, female Asian cop, right? And, um, like, in, in the post-episode interview, they were like, Jack really likes Holly. So it's not like he's not a sexist racist, but, like, but, like, he exists in that archetypical, like, sphere, right. you know? Right. Yeah. And I think that tension is what makes this show so much more interesting. Because, like, if he were, if he were just, like, a racist misogynist, like, the, the, the moment when Holly is talking to him and she's like, you look like you're going through some kind of hell in last week's episode, right? Like someone's yeah. eating your heart out or whatever she, she says. And he, and he says that thing about his wife leaving him and how it was the best day of his life. But like, it seems so obviously not the case, right? He not only has this trauma of whatever his mother did to him as a kid, but like this rec- more, maybe more recent trauma of like his marriage dissolving. And, um, you know, we know that he just like hangs around the strip club and is angry all the time and stuff like that. But like, there's what's underneath all of that is a pain. And that's what she's saying, like El Cuco is drawn to, which is like your, your, your hurt that you're nursing around this. Um, and right. That's a compelling concept. And, you know? and I think, you know, going back to the sort of religious illusions with the therapist, like, not that they were explicitly said, but I think, again, it felt like a, a, a scene where someone goes to confession. Yeah. Um, like, the show is showing like illustrating like an outlet for that you know not that that not that you can not that going to therapy like you know removes pain from your life but it helps you process it and 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 it it helps lift the burden some you know and in doing then you would give off less for something to feed off of you know what i mean so i think it's offering a sort of an alternative to the, you know, the sort of internal struggle that Jack has, has kind of found himself mired in and maybe made him, made him a good target for, um, this demon. Um, you know, I, I did though the, like the joke about the, the, how many psychologists does it take to screw in a light bulb? That's One, a but the light joke. bulb really has to want to change. <laughs> like, it's a great joke. I'm going to use that joke. Holly um, should have laughed. That was a good joke, Jack. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, um, yeah, so you find yourself like, <laughs> like liking or sympathizing with Jack in a way that you didn't expect anyway. Um, well, you pity him, you know? Yeah. And you hope like Holly does that he can be come out of this other, this thing. Okay. You know? 
yeah, I mean, I think, I think something that will be, I mean, <clears throat> I don't see a way out of this for Jack, unfortunately, but I think, you know, something that will feel emotionally satisfying is if he sacrifices himself in some way to protect Holly and Ralph, you know, if he is able to stand and up against, and Andy, of course, obviously, um, if he's able to stand up against this demon that has taken over him. Uh, you, you talking about the therapist in terms of Catholic confession, which I think is brilliant, um, makes me think of, like, reconsider what we see of Jack when he's in these, you know, it reminds me of, um, and like, forgive me because I'm an atheist, so I don't know a lot about, um, you know, uh, religious practices, but like in, uh, I know from films <laughs> that in some forms of extreme zealotry, there's like that, the moment of self-flagellation, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like when you're in a uh, confession or whatever, and you've said you self, you, you physically abuse your, your own flesh as a, as um, I think it's atonement uh, would be my guess. Penitence, um, yeah, yeah, penitence. And uh, and Holly says to Jack, you know, like he does this thing where he did not uh, kill her, stop her the way that El Cuco wanted to him to in the last episode. And Holly says, "And look how he's made you pay." You know what I mean? Like, look mm-hmm. at like how he's made you atone for defying him the devil or or whatever you want to call it uh the joker as as jack calls him at one point so yeah um one thing i will say about jack uh if if you were to try idly to crack someone's uh iphone code would you try one 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 one? Because that's what Jack tried on Holly's phone. No, I would have done zero 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 one, then zero 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 two, <laughs> and then the phone would have been bricked and it would have been useless. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, the other sort of socio political thing that I want to introduce um, is this idea of uh, who gets to be believed. So what I think was powerful was you have Jeannie and Holly talking to Ralph and being like, you can't keep denying this. And I think it was powerful. I mean, like Andy is an ally and Andy was standing next to Ralph in that scene. He's an ally of Holly's, but like it seemed powerful to me, especially the way in which they were raising their voices, which seemed uncharacteristic for both of these women um, of like a, you know, why won't you believe us these two women in your life sort of thing. Do you feel like that, that there, am I reading too much into this? Is there something gendered in that dynamic? No, I think, I think totally that, I think that's totally there, you know, um, that, you know, this is, I I think, you know, I think Ralph too, because in another, you know, I guess less thoughtful version of this story, like Ralph is your prototypical kind of hard charging, you know, cop with an attitude who then, you know, has a kind of latent, third a third act epiphany you know um and then like learns the errors to some extent of his ways but we still kind of appreciate that toughness and that brashness he's never really been that except for the thing the, the mistake he makes in having terry publicly arrested which he then apologizes and atones for like shortly after you know right, right. so i think but i think that what the show is saying is that even someone who is you know can talk about his emotion who can you know, uh, to some extent he can, you know, you know, is, is a compassionate person. Even that man can be stubborn and not listen to women and, you know, like kind of believe that the way that he sees the world is the default setting of the world. And, um, you know, and a part of his arc is, is kind of unpacking that and sort of moving past it, hopefully. 
Yeah, I really see, um, you know, you and I have been like, okay, this is a 10 episode season. How long can this character believably not believe, you know? Right. And so I think this move to have um, Jeannie and Holly yell at him, I was thinking of you in that moment. I was like, this will hopefully (laughs) please Richard. Because, like, you know, if if you need to have a character... Uh, you know, do something that's frustrating to the audience. Uh, if you call it out in the episode, then that can sort of soothe us a little bit. So yeah. we're like, okay, we're not we're not the only ones yelling at him to be like, you dummy, believe like there's a, these other characters are yelling that too. So at least you know we're not alone in our frustration. Yeah, and I was thinking about it, and I was like, okay, so what will like the ultimate acceptance of this? you know, horrifying reality be for Ralph. Um, and yes, I'm sure there will be an actual like confrontation with this, this entity in Claude form, perhaps. Yeah. That's why Patty Constantine's there. Cause we're going to see him play the bad thing maybe. Um, but like, okay, so then, then, then you kind of have to accept it if it's right in front of you. But I think the more interesting dynamic, if the show goes this way and who knows is, um, when, uh, Ralph as a sort of representative of the police force, has to sort of disclose to the public in order to help Glory and her family that like Terry Maitland did not do that, did not kill this kid, you know, and how he's going to frame that and what he's going to say. And, you know, I don't know if that moment's going to happen, but I was just thinking about that as that being, that being like a kind of crucial point of acceptance for him, you know, to sort of somehow inform the public that like he got it very wrong, you know? Yeah. I, uh, one thing I know for certain <laughs> No matter what it is, uh, Ben Mendelsohn is going to play it like perfectly. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are moments like uh, there are just choices he makes, like when Alex Pelly is in the car and telling him about his like, uh, which I think, I mean, in the, so the episode title is "In the Pines and the Pines," um, which is uh, you know a, a lyric uh, or, or title from a traditional folk song. Uh, in the pines and the pines where the sun never shines and shiver when the cold wind blows. Um, that, um, that I think is a reference to what Alex experienced in the forest. Cause like, I think, I think that's what a lot of these titles are about are about these sort of like folk tales or weird occurrences, right? Like the, the Yiddish vampire and the like, mm-hmm. you know, the tear, the tear drinker and like whatever, like that's what these episode titles are. And, um, th- Ben Mendelsohn did this thing with his face where he just sort of like locked it down in this sort of like resentful, like stubborn, I will not take this in sort of position, which I just thought was, you know, uh, really like, it's just, I could watch his face all day is my point. Um, I have two more things before we hop off, um, unless you have anything else, which is number one, I thought the like Alex and Ralph, figuring out what happened to Holly and Jack, it sort of like stretches belief. My, my belief that they would do that all in like what they said they were 90 minutes behind them, like that they figured all of that out in 90 minutes um, is, you know, that they figured out Jack was somehow like, um, uh, I don't know. Anyway. uh, Yeah. I I know what you mean. Yeah. It felt a little rushed. It felt rushed. And convenient. And convenient, but also like these are guys who are very good at what they do, and they did at least have Jack's apartment to go off of, which is like 
if I saw that, I'd be like, get that guy. Well, mm-hmm. I don't care if he's taking Holly to Froyo. He also needs to go to therapy. So, like, mm-hmm. let's find this guy, you know? So, um, yeah, so that aspect. And then, uh, so I, uh, I apologize at the top of this episode, I got the director's name wrong. It's Dana Reed. And, um, there's plenty of things that, like, a director, like, it's hard to know who to credit when you're watching a TV show for what, in terms of, like, was this scripted or did the director make this choice? Uh, but one shot that we see multiple times that feels like a director's choice, uh, though I could be wrong, is this image of, like, a bug on its back, sort of, like, maybe uh-huh. dying or whatever. Uh, what did you make of that repeated uh, image? Oh, I, I thought it was a reference to the famous Nine Inch Nails video with with all the bugs. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, like the, the image of this kind of thing that a lot of people find creepy, icky, like a bug, like which, like I do or whatever, but like on its back and flailing helplessly, you know, like there are a lot of people in the show who that could maybe be visually representative of, like I think Jack most of all but right Jack. now. But yeah. like, but yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, it's, this show does not do a ton of kind of artsy flourishes like that. Yeah. Um, and so when they're in there, you're kind of like, okay, this is like, this is very purposeful, you know? Right. What does this mean? Uh, the last, the other thing that I noticed in this episode, not for the first time, but like really noticed is the art doesn't, the like production design on, um, Ralph and Jeannie's house. There's just something about it that is so specifically like, slightly older couple like there's nothing like cool or stylish about their house at all and it's not like it's not like ugly or anything like that it's just sort of like the art is all like consistently one very like strong look do you know what i mean that it's just like it's like it's like kind of square and like a little old and like i just i love that for them i love you know i love that genie genie's sewing room is also where the printer is there's just you know it's just like it all it all feels so completely real of you know even though it's not a place i've ever been yeah one one other thing about yeah. about production design in this episode that I have to a little a, a nit to pick mm. is when Gloria's giving the home tour and they go into the kitchen and there's a pot filler <laughs> over the stove. Uh-huh. I don't buy for a second that that house with that dated kitchen, not too too dated, but dated enough with that kind of stove. I don't buy. I think they I think production glued that pot fi- fake pot filler <laughs> onto that wall just to satisfy that line. I don't. I didn't buy the pot, pot filler in that kitchen for a second. Because that's a is that that's a modern convenience the pot filler. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how I don't know wh- when it goes back to, but like I watch a lot of home design, you know, HGTV <laughs> and stuff like that, and it's like it's just kind of becoming a standard thing now. What if the last people who lived there really loved pasta? I mean, and they had it installed. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, but then she calls it a dump. The house, you know, and like it's like, but it has the pot filler. So, <laughs> yeah. That house is nice. Gloria yeah, was, was just fun. in her feelings yeah. in the moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I loved her description of it too. She's just like, you know, pasta water. I was like, <laughs> okay, Gloria. <laughs> I know you're going through some stuff, but you're not bringing your realtor A game here. It's okay. Um, yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about the pot filler. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, okay. Well, I think, I think we did it. Um, I don't know what we're going to see next week. Hopefully, I, you know, what I would like them to start doing more of is, uh, you know, so Claude has quit his job. Um, he has left town. I know, I know where he goes in the book. I don't know if that's going to be where he goes in the show. I'm not going to say. Um, but uh, wherever he's going, 
I would like to get much more of Claude next week as we're ramping up to the finale so that the stakes of like caring about him protect because I a default care about him because I care about that actor, but like so that we like care about him, uh so that the sight of him uh being an evil person is more disturbing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like well, same- Yeah. I feel like we will get more of him. Like, yeah. and, uh, because I, I love the detail that I, I kind of was like, oh, right, of course. When like, they were like, why didn't you tell me that this pick, this drawing looks kind of like Claude? You yeah. know, so like, so the creature is almost maybe complete in its, uh, you know, mimicking of, of him, <laughs> yeah. you know, of its yeah, cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think yeah. that's interesting. Um, I also loved, you know, again, this show kind of infusing things with little moments of humanity. That scene that was in some ways totally unnecessary between him and the guy who owned the strip club yeah. being like, here's a little extra, you know, blah, 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 you know, like, good luck or whatever. Like, I just thought it was like, yes, because these are people and, and, you know, are for the most part decent. So, um, yeah, I think, I think, I think Patty Considine's big episode will be, well, big episodes will be the next couple. Yeah, I just need more of, of like real Claude yeah. before mm-hmm. we get evil Claude. It's like similar to like you don't need to do that work with Jason Bateman necessarily because that's a character that's an actor we're even more familiar with. So like seeing him covered in blood, um, you know, is in and of itself a like disturbing image. But I th- I feel like audiences who are not so familiar with the great works of Patty Considine, including in America and other films. Um, you know, need a little bit more time with him. So that's, that would be my hope for the next, that's the work I think they need to do that and protecting Andy are the two things that the show needs to do. <laughs> um, all right. Return in- until next time. Where can folks find you? Well, I'm just going to be lugging. I have to fill up all these pots with water and the sink and then <laughs> carry them all the way over to the, the, the stove. It's going to take me all week. So that's where I'm going to be. And if I have time between this arduous task, uh, I will be tweeting from Rylas and writing for VF.com. Joanna, where will you be until uh, the eighth episode recap? Uh, I will be uh, changing my phone password to one 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 because I think no one will ever try to guess that. Right. Um, and when I'm done with that, I will be at vf.com or on Twitter at Joe Wrote This, and we will see you all for episode eight next week. Check your necks. <laughs> <laughs>